Hello and welcome to episode 2132 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great because we've got a great show for you today. That always makes me feel like a late night TV host when I say (laughs) that. It's just the default. It's always a great show. I'll tell you when it's a terrible show. I'll let you know in advance. We have two previews teed up. So we'll be talking about the Toronto Blue Jays with Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic and the Cincinnati Reds with C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic. But for the intro only, we are joined by another member of the Fangraph staff, other Ben, Ben Clemens. Hello, Ben. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going well. So instead of deep thoughts by Jack Handy, let's do depth thoughts by Ben Clemens, because (laughs) you have been blogging about depth, and we thought this would be a good subject for the intro, because this comes up often in our team preview pods. We're always talking about, okay, who's next? Who's the sixth through tenth starter? Who's on the bench? What happens if this guy gets hurt? And that is a thorny problem. And you have been wrestling with that in various ways at Fangraphs. We have acknowledged on the podcast and Fangraphs writers have acknowledged in writing that this is maybe an aspect of baseball that the projections don't currently do a great job of modeling and taking into account. So as Brad Pitt's Billy Bean says in Moneyball, what's the problem? Why do we want to solve this problem? And why is it so tricky to solve? The reason that this is a problem is because we've designed the Fangraph projections. I mean, I say we, but, you know, (laughs) David Appleman and Mm -hmm. a lot of people a long time ago have designed the Fangraph projections to be very simple, very hard to break, which I think is good. It makes them work really consistently. And what we do is we just figure out how much each player is going to play, take some projections for how good they are, and figure out how good teams are based off of that. And that's a, a really foolproof model, which we really like. There's one big problem, which is figure out how much players are going to play. And that's not easy to do. And we don't vary it from simulation to simulation. We just go figure out how good the teams are and then run the season out. And that's not how it works in real life. So that that's always been kind of a, a spot where we know that players get injured. But we only have one set of playing time projections, which are from roster resource. And those are good projections for how a team will divvy out its playing time at full strength. But... You know, if you go look at it, I, I used Ronald Acuna as the example in my article, and he's projected for the most played appearances in baseball, 679. And usually that'll happen. Like, usually he'll bat a lot and play most of the year. The Braves starters never take a day off because they have, <laughs> you know, that's just like, it's partially because they have no backups, but partially because everyone in Atlanta just plays all the time. But, you know, he he's missed time plenty of times. And he obviously won't miss time every season, but he missed most of 2021 and he missed half of 2022 coming back. Uh, he's played more than 679 plate appearances in two of the last like four full seasons he's played. We're excluding 2020 here. The point is, playing time is tricky, and it doesn't seem perfectly accurate to reality to give everyone the same playing time in every simulation. If what projections are supposed to do is simulate a bunch of possible realities and take the median, well, we're kind of missing something with the injuries, because in a bunch yeah. of possible realities, people will get hurt sometimes. Do we know how big a problem this is? Because you have investigated the results of the playoff odds and the team projections in the past, and you've found them to be pretty good. Obviously, you're going to miss on any given team and any given season. That's going to happen. But by and large, 
they tend to be pretty accurate, right? Like if you say that a yes. team has a X percent chance of making the playoffs, then historically speaking, that has tended to be true with a large enough sample. So it's not like the projections are way off as it is. So is there any way to quantify how much better they could be or how big a modeling issue it is that this is not currently taken into account sufficiently? Um, no. <laughs> essentially, essentially, no is the answer I'm looking for here. So the projections we have right now don't show a ton of bias in the error overall. They don't like they don't over predict teams with 70% winning percent. 70% playoff chances or underpredict teams with 27% playoff chances. The errors are uniform across the distribution, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to know how much we're missing on depth without having a depth model to compare it to. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this, we've been pretty bad at predicting the Rays uh-huh. and pretty yeah. bad at predicting the Cardinals in the last, call it, six or seven years. Maybe that's because those teams have been just being lucky and it'll even out like the Cardinals, the Cardinals have come back to the pack a lot by being very bad last year, for example. But historically speaking, we've, I think if you were able to do some kind of subjective measure of depth, we would overpredict the teams like the Red Sox and Mets are the ones that every time I write these uh, playoff odds articles every year, you know, takeaways from our playoff odds. I'm always like, well, if one player gets hurt on the Red Sox, his replacement is like a seventh grader who's like discovering baseball for the first time and he might be pretty good. Yeah, or the White Sox for that matter while we're talking about Sox related teams with a lack of depth. Exactly. Yeah, there are there are plenty of teams that I feel like our odds are missing. I haven't the problem is that I haven't been able to quantify that. And so I can't give you a quantitative answer for how much I think we're going to gain in our projections. But one thing that they'll do is I don't like having these projections where I explain how they work and I'm like, "Well, here's a, a problem with them." Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that I think our projections underrate the the Rays in a way that kind of makes sense, that they're less likely than other teams to have a breakdown because they just have so many players. And also they turned Zach Littell into a number three starter, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, that that too. This isn't going to solve that um, projection. That's the scope of my analysis here. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I want our projections to make sense. And I feel like the face validity of them is a little bit under question when we tell people that they're not accounting for depth. And I want to say, and then I'm going to ask you to describe sort of what approach um, you guys have taken to try to address this. But, you know, I want to say, and I don't know if I have to, but I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to say it again, because I feel like I say the same things about the playoff odds every year and the depth charts. And then people are like, you know, they have like face blindness with the, with it. There's no object permanence. I forget. (laughs) Our, our, (laughs) I think that one thing people should remember is that our playoff odds are very responsive to changes in the depth chart. So, like, let's say we're not going to even say Ronald Acuna Jr.'s name in relation to this. We're just going to say a unnamed star. Let's imagine an unnamed star on a contending team, like, blew out his knee tomorrow, right? And he's done for the season. Our depth charts would reflect that change. They would reflect that change almost instantly, right? Where his backup or a number of backups would be elevated to fill that playing time. But they are not anticipating a uh, disaster related to injury at this moment. And they're underrating the depth behind it. So So just in case people are confused about that point. In fact, that's the reason that our playoff odds work the way they do. Because... They're so right. simple that it's very easy to be responsive. I could literally, yes. well, I can't, I don't have the spreadsheet, but Jason <laughs> could go in and lop right. 500 plate appearances off of, let's pick a player who's 
like good, but not the same guy we've been using. Let's say Lop 500 played appearances off Mookie Betts. He yes. joins a bowling tour for the first five months of the year. Jason yes. could type that in, and three minutes later, our odds would reflect it. So by virtue of being very simple, which is something that we're aiming to keep long-term, yes. uh, they're very responsive. The, yes. the issue is always with prospective futures, not with the present. It's very good at updating the present strength of teams into the odds. So let's talk about those perspective futures. So what is the approach that the, the brain trust is trying out here? What's the approach? We're trying an approach of regenerating depth charts without team's best players and with a, without an increasing number of team's best players. The idea there is that we're looking for what happens for teams in disaster scenarios. And it's not like every scenario is going to be what if a team's best 10 players all get hurt, but that's probably a good proxy for how much depth will matter. So the calibration has yet to be done, but the approach that we're doing to kind of quantify a team's depth is algorithmically remove top players by war from a team and regenerate their rosters. So what I mean by that is we'll just stick with the Braves because they're they're who I wrote about and I just know all the players in order, who their best players are <laughs> most easily. So we took Acuna's playing time from 679 plate appearances to zero. And then the code says, give all that playing time, all the plate appearances to the next player on the depth charts and re-figure out how good the team is. Now that's Jared Kelnick. He's projected for like 14 playing appearances in right. Basically, we're giving Acuna all of them. But Kelnick is next up. And so we just say, hey, Jared, here's all of Ronald Acuna's playing time. You have it now. How good is the team? That's not realistic because Kelnick is already basically a full-time player right. uh, for the Braves. So... This wouldn't work. Uh, so we've added in a, a waterfall effect. So what the algorithm does is it looks back at it and says, okay, does anyone have more than 100% playing time now that we've rebuilt this team? Yes. So it, it says, okay, we need to take off all the excess playing time from everyone who has more than 100%. And so it looks at Kelnick. It says, well, he has 1,200 plate appearances. No, he can't have more than 700. So it gets rid of his playing time at every position proportionally. So he's mainly projected to play left field. If he stepped in as Acuna's replacement, he'd be projected for right field. And so the algorithm says, remove left and right field and a tiny smattering of center field until he's back to only playing full time. Well, okay, now there's a bunch more missing playing time. Who gets that? It can't be Kelnick. He's maxed out. So it just goes down to the next person on the list. So who's his backup and left? Who's his backup and right? That happens to be Forrest Wall, and he can actually soak up all the rest of the playing time because he's not projected to play very much. But if he was also projected for a lot, it would go down to the next guy. And it does this, I think, 20 times. It just keeps water falling down. If anyone has too much playing time, it lops it off. It gives it to their backups. Then it regenerates the team strength. Then it makes sure that the team doesn't have anyone with an illegal number of plate appearances, and so on and so forth. Reminds me a little bit of the concept of chaining when it comes to bullpen and relievers, yeah. which goes into reliever war based on the idea that if you lose your closer, for instance, it's not quite the same as losing your first baseman, let's say, where you still have to have another first baseman. Another player's got to play that position in sort of the same way. Right. If you lose your closer, you're not calling up a replacement who is then going to be your closer, you are probably just promoting your top setup guy to be the closer. And then you're going to call up another reliever and they'll be at the bottom of the totem pole and everyone moves up a spot. It's yeah. sort of like that. So it works even better for pitchers. So we'll go down to the next step on the Braves ladder for that. That's Spencer Strider. So he has 
I think like 180 innings or so that he's projected for. And if he didn't throw those, well, we don't just go who is, you know, the first starter not projected to, th- to make any, who's their best starter in AAA. Give it all to that guy. We just go down the starter depth chart. So like, I think Max Free is projected for 28 starts. We say, well, he'll make 30. Like some of these guys will pick up the slack, but the vast majority of the innings just fall way down the chart to people who are, so Bryce Elder and uh, Waskar Enoa were both projected for like 10-ish starts. And so they need to pick up a ton of the strider slack, but it's a pure chaining kind of thing there. We just literally keep pouring the starts down until it fills up all the starters on the depth chart in order. And that's, for one player, it works quite simply. When you're removing the top, let's say, three outfielders and second baseman and shortstop and the top three pitchers, then right. this waterfall gets pretty uh, pretty intense. <laughs> I mean, we can just stick with the Braves if you want, but some of the backups are going to be stretched thin if 10 players right. are missing. I mean, I don't think our playing time does a great job of accounting for that. It, it just can't. How could it? The top 10 players on the team don't miss the whole year. But ours just attempts to keep... Like, you know, Larry Garcia is going to be playing a lot. Luis Guillorme is going to be playing a lot. David Fletcher, too. Forrest Wall, he'll be playing a ton. Jordan Luplo. J.P. Martinez, who's not J.D. Martinez. That, that gets me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all these guys are just going to be maxed out. And we should say here, just to clarify for folks that, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but you have to be projected for at least one plate appearance on the depth chart in order to be included in the waterfall, right? So, or exactly. I guess inning pitch. So if you are a fan of a team that has, say, a lot of really exciting young pitchers in the DSL, like we're, we're not automatically promoting guys uh, that far down the org chart up into a, a big league role um, by virtue of the methodology correct Um, Uh, we just don't have any so there's two reasons that we don't do that one is that we don't really have the ability to do that once you get past guys that we project we'd be guessing who's coming up next uh the other reason is that there's just not much variation when you get that far down like which triple a outfielder lifer are you calling up to replace your guy that doesn't matter that much like if it it gets down to which double a outfielder like these guys are all going to be below replacement level so using JP Martinez to stick with a guy that I've just mentioned instead of them is just not going to be that big of a difference. So one thing that happens with some of these teams when we get to removing the top 10 players is that there's actually not enough playing time. Like we just <laughs> like someone has to play more than 100% to make the math work and we give that to the worst player on the team to simulate the fact that it's bad. Like somebody bad will be coming up. But it does go farther down than you'd expect. I looked at uh looked at the Nats as an example because they're they're projected quite poorly. And you might say, well, we're not giving enough time to their, like, you know, prospects if they had depth injuries. Well, James Wood's on the chart. Right. Uh, Dylan Cruz is on there. Brady House is on there. Like, it's not nobody. Like, like right. some top prospects are projected for some time. But, right. yeah, if you're talking about a DSL pitcher, they're not going to be in this. If you're talking yeah. about guys in low A, they're, or I guess, A now, I don't know, not high A, they're not going to be in this. They need to be projected to have at least a little bit of major league time. So I know you and others at Fancrafts have thought a lot about this, but now that you've put it out there, that you've gotten a lot of comments and feedback, has anyone pointed out issues that have made you think of doing things differently? Or I guess whatever you do, it's going to be kind of a kludge. There's probably no perfect way to model this. It'll just be better than nothing, certainly. But are you already anticipating when this is eventually baked into the projections somehow, hopefully, that you'll have 
have to include some other different kinds of caveats to say, well, it doesn't perfectly take into account this or that. Yeah, uh, for sure. So I would say the main thing that people have given us feedback on and also that we're working on that we think is really interesting is the order that we remove players from a team. So because we start at the very top, we're like showing the maximum impact of injury. And that may not be exactly... Like, that doesn't really reflect how reality works. If one player on team gets hurt, it's not automatically their star. And so maybe an average measure of depth picks a random player among the top 10 players of the team and then two random players. That's like a, that's a potentially a reasonable way to do it. It is all going to depend on how this goes into, like, the calibration of the model. Because, like, one thing that we're not going to do, and I don't want people to think that we're going to do, is just say, oh... There's a there's 10% chance of each of these outcomes happening. Like either right. no one will be hurt or the best player will be hurt or the top two best players will be hurt. Like that would not be realistic, but that's not what we're doing. What we're going to try to do is to use a lot of these different winning percentages put together in different ways with varying percentages that will be calculated in some calibration process that we have not done yet to try to make it look like how injuries have worked real, uh, in history. So that's that's tough work. A lot of what we're doing there is trying to look at what teams have been lo- what teams have looked like in the preseason in terms of who their best players have been projected to be, who their best projected players are, and how often those guys have been projected to play versus how much they've actually played. So there's a lot of work to be done on that because if you're trying to fit data to historical injury patterns, well, like I can't just use this grid. I have to look at actual historical historical injury patterns, right? right? Like mm-hmm. like this thing is agnostic of how often players actually get hurt. And that's by design. This is trying to kind of, and once you have the parameters, you can calibrate it. And that's where we're going to go to next is trying to figure out, okay, I know that if the 10 best players on each team were not in baseball, the Rays would be the best team in baseball. Uh, And that's probably been the case for the last five or six years. Let's be real. Like that's just, that's how they build their team. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Like how much does that change their playoff odds? Well, or how much does that change their team strength? I think playoff odds is kind of downstream of team strength. What we're trying to figure out is if you're trying to figure out a team's expected strength and you're trying to take injuries into account, how much should you change their projected strength down from full strength based on both injury likelihood and depth? And so this is useful just because it'll give us a template for like how much to move each team's team strength down based on injury. But the likelihood of that happening and thus how much each team's strength will go down, even accounting for the fact that some teams are differently deep than others. I don't have an answer for you on that yet. And that's the hard part of turning this from a a really neat little spreadsheet into our playoff odds. So this is still in the conceptual development phase here, but you have presented some data that shows what sort of effect this might have on individual teams. You put out a supplementary post with, I think, a dozen tables, which Something might like be some sort of record. It's, uh, it's fan graphs, Ben. It's not fan tables. It was such but, a great edit, though. Like, it was so easy. You know, I got so up and I was like, oh, I for, I didn't have time to edit Ben last night. I was getting the Dodgers list done and I opened it up and I was like, beautiful. Every post yeah. would be like this. It was like seven yeah. words. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Fangraphs table maker getting a workout for that one. But I wonder from having worked on that, we've talked about the Rays, of course, but because this isn't implemented in the model yet, I wonder what takeaways you've had when it comes to which teams are particularly well set up or vulnerable from a depth perspective. If this were something that were a factor in the projections right now, which teams do you think it would move the needle on most? A way that I did that was I just went and looked at what teams looked like with their top three players removed. I mean, that's not a great, it's like not exactly what's going to happen, but I think it's an okay proxy for like the amount of injuries that a team might face on average in a year. It won't happen that way. It's not like every team's top three players are going to get lopped off, but something between like, how would your team look if you took out the top two players and if you took out the top three players, it's probably an okay like if I had to guess right now, proxy for an average amount of injuries, the best teams are the Braves and Dodgers, if that happens. So that should tell you <laughs> that it's not changing too yeah. much. The rich um, get richer. Yeah. Or they just don't get as poor. Like they actually aren't getting richer. They're coming back towards the pack, mm. but they're still the richest. Mm-hmm. It's like if you increase tax rates by 2%. Well, like, okay, that's not enough. Um, <laughs> like it, it taxed the rich a little, but we didn't eat them yet. The Rays... And Cardinals do better in this. And I, I think that's kind of going to be your like through line here is that teams like that, I think probably should get a little bump in our odds. Probably will get a bump in our odds once we integrate this down the road. The other teams that I think are interesting in terms of having high floors, which in my opinion will up your playoff odds in general, are the Cubs and to a lesser extent the Reds. Uh, kind of dishonorable mention here goes to the Giants. The Giants mm-hmm. don't have their playoff odds de- or their winning percentage decline by much as they get more injured. Their floor is closer to their ceiling, let's call it. Uh-huh. The problem is that the ceiling's not very high and the floor is still like yeah. not particularly high. It's just close yeah. to the ceiling. And so, like, look, getting rid of your bad outcomes isn't that helpful if the good outcomes still aren't good enough to make the playoffs. So I think if the Giants had a, a little bit more star power, not a ton more, then it would matter more. Or if their depth players were better. The thing is that their depth players are all kind of like second division starters. They go deeper in second division starters than almost everyone else. Like they, they go quite deep there. But the problem is that's not that helpful. Yeah. Like, like the Rays go pretty deep with guys who you could even see starting for a first division team. And then you're like, yeah, I could see that. Like and they're good at deploying them. That's totally different. The Giants, like the Giants have a lot of guys where he could start for the pirates and like, yeah, but okay. (laughs) That's, that's not how they determine who makes the playoffs. And so they are interesting for looking pretty good by this metric. Like their, their team strengths doesn't decline much. I think we have them as like the one, the 11th best team in baseball, missing their top three players. But like, yeah, that's not that good. The problem is that we have them worse than that at full strength. And it's it's just going to be hard for them, even though they have depth, like, I think this is a place where if even if we added these injury-knowledgeable playoff odds, the Giants' odds wouldn't go up that much. And Giants fans would be like, hey, but we have depth. Yeah, but the wrong kind of depth. Well, and I, I think a, a thing for people to keep in mind is that, like, I think this will be a very significant improvement when we get it dialed in the way we want it to. But it is it is only looking at depth and replacement within the org. So as with, you know, our regular playoff odds, we get this question from folks all the time, like, why aren't you anticipating that this team is trying to contend and will add at the deadline? And it's like, well, we can't, 
we can't do that. Who are we taking away from what team to add later on, right? So, you yeah. know, they're still going to be we can't predict the future, but we can probably more accurately reflect the present and near-term, short-term future. Mm. Yeah. I think one thing that's worth saying is that sometimes like defining what you're trying to do is helpful. And we're not trying yeah. to, uh, this isn't really trying to be, you know, like in the fullness of reality and accounting for all possible moves, what will right. happen. This is kind of like, given who's on a team right now, how likely are they to make the playoffs? And the thing is that I think injury can go into that. Given yeah. who's on a team right now, how likely they are to make the playoffs, I think that reasonably includes, well, some of these guys might get hurt. I don't think it reasonably includes, I mean, who knows? The Dodgers could just trade for whoever they need to to make the playoffs. Right. Like, yeah, that, right. that's true, but it's right. like a little too speculative. Like, hey, I don't think anyone really predicted the various times that like the Guardians have sold despite being in the race or the Twins have added a lot. Like, there's a lot of times where teams make playoff moves that were not predicted preseason, and we'd have a really tough time modeling those. I think our model would lose, like, face validity. I, I think you'd say, yes, why agreed. in the world are you trying to do this? Doing that. <laughs> we're trying to stick to something that is, uh, like, much more definable, but I think injuries yes. fit within that. And that's why we think this is a, a good space for, for exploration. I wonder whether down the road this could even lead to some kind of quantified team-specific replacement level, which you don't have in war, nor do you necessarily want it in war. It's not a problem with war. You want a consistent league-wide baseline so you can compare players across teams. But it would be kind of cool to have a measure of a team-specific replacement level so that you know, oh, well, this guy is worth X to this team potentially, but this much to that team because of the depth on this team. You can yeah. kind of do that on an ad hoc basis and eyeball it and say, oh, well, they have this guy in front of this other guy in the depth chart, right? But this would be almost a, a way to systematize that potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. Big credit to Appleman for the, for the method on this. But the idea of kind of like waterfalling down the playing time and redistributing it that way based on our existing depth charts, it's both like pretty elegant conceptually, I think. It's like very clean and like programmable so that it can be done algorithmically. Those mm -hmm. two things combined are really nice because, yeah, you could tell me on a, like you said, on a case by case basis, here's who it is. Yeah. Right. Now write a code that does that for every player in baseball. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like that. Right. I, I think that's a very impressive feat of like taking things that we can talk about and turning them into a, a computer, a line of code that works every time. I think that's often a, a, a tough spot in all these discussions is like, well, look, we obviously know the Rays have a lot of good backups, but but who and how much? I, I think right. I mentioned in the article, but we used to just use the second string. Like that was the first cut at it. And it worked so badly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like so many players are second string at multiple positions and it, right. it just did not work. Like I think the Cardinals might've been better on their second string and their first string, some teams definitely were. Because, like, one guy was a starter at one position and then a, and he's pretty good, but he's a backup at four more positions. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, hmm, well, this didn't work <laughs> out very well. Well, I look forward to this implementation whenever and however it happens. And I don't know how big the magnitude will be of the difference. Yeah, it's going to be small. Uh, 
Right. You know, so so it's a heavy lift for probably a, a light result, but I think an important result and a way to address a deficiency that everyone is aware of and acknowledges. And so hopefully someday we have a depth adjusted model of the playoff odds and we can compare and see what sort of difference it actually makes. And it's a don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good situation, probably. And I don't know what the computational trade-offs are, whether this is complex enough that it would be tough to run it continuously and as many simulations as the model currently does and as responsive as it is. But if it can get to that point, that'd be great because there are only so many areas where... I don't know. This obviously isn't low-hanging fruit. It sounds like it's on a pretty high branch, actually. <laughs> so, But there are only so many areas where we're all kind of aware of a blind spot in the stats or the projections, and we just sort of shrug about it. But there is some potential with public data to improve on the margins somewhat. So yeah. you're, se- you're seizing the opportunity. Exactly. I, I'm not going to give you a timeline. Um, <laughs> not that we don't have one, but even if we did, I wouldn't give you one. Yeah, Um, no. But I will say that I feel pretty comfortable as the the non-computer program, non-computer literate, like kind of guy who has bad ideas that lead to good breakthroughs for other people. (laughs) I feel pretty comfortable with the fact that there is a way to fit this into our responsive and robust model without substantially bogging it down. I'm not too worried about that. I think that the hard part is the calibration. And that is, that is in fact very hard, but I think we have, I think that it will be possible to make it run like you're used to on the fan graphs model and still be nice and snappy just with a little bit more information about depth in a cleverly coded way. Yeah. And even perfect projections are imperfect in the sense that we can't predict everything about baseball, nor would we want to. There's an inherent unpredictability. There's just a margin of error when it comes to the randomness of baseball that no projection system can possibly solve. And obviously, we wouldn't want to solve it because, as they say, that's why they play the games. So... This has been Model Talk, as they say sometimes on the 538 Politics podcast, which is also produced by our producer, Shane McKeon. He's a two-way producer. Ben, thanks for your efforts on this. It's fascinating. It's thought-provoking. And we'll talk to you in a few weeks when we do our bold predictions for the 2024 season. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Caitlin McGrath to preview the Toronto Blue Jays, followed by C. Trent Rosecrans to preview the Cincinnati Reds. Time to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays with Caitlin McGrath, who covers the Jays for The Athletic. Hello. Welcome back, Caitlin. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me once again. Okay. Can I start a single team preview segment by asking about a player who is actually on the team in question instead of asking about someone else entirely, typically Shohei Otani? Not 
today and not in this preview <laughs> segment, but I have an excuse because, Caitlin, your colleague Jason Stark published a fun story this week at The Athletic, headlined How Blue Jays Players Tracked the Flight of Shohei Otani from Turbulent Rumors to the Plain Truth. Nice pun, Jason. So where were you, Caitlin, during the fateful flight of N616RH? And to what extent did that fruitless pursuit of Otani and the disappointing way it resolved for Jays fans color this offseason for the Jays because I guess there's no way to come back from being maybe runners-up or among the runners-up for Shohei Otani. You can sign as many Yariel Rodriguez's and Justin Turner's as you want. It's just maybe not quite the same. So what impact did this have on the team and on the fan base? How did you follow that day's events or non-events? Yeah, I was. It was right after the winter meetings, I believe, if I recall exactly. And I had just come back home to Toronto and was a little bit sort of, you know, jet lagged just because the winter meetings are a busy time. And I actually think I was like out for lunch with my family. It was my <laughs> nephew's birthday oh, um, no. and all that stuff started happening so it was kind of half on my phone and just kind of going I remember just kind of going back and forth with my editor being like should we wait for more reports should we wait to hear something from the team like like it was a very one-off time like it was so extraordinary it's not like any other free agent signing so it was like you didn't even know exactly like how to navigate it I actually remember like we came to the like we sat we sat and waited and watched it all unfold and then we kind of were like let's just write about what has been happening today in terms of like the flight tracking all the rumors that were happening with like the coochie sushi party and <laughs> opera singers think, yeah uh, opera singer <laughs> and uh, Shark Tank uh, judge and so I think we ended up sort of like writing about that and then obviously the the next day we found out that he was signing with the Dodgers and um, in terms of how it colored the offseason it really impacted the Jays offseason just because they were in it, right? They were a finalist. They were really pushing hard for Otani. And uh, it's hard to know in terms of where he was coming from, how serious was he in pursuing Toronto and going to Toronto? Serious enough that he visited their complex in Dunedin, but obviously he chose the Dodgers. So was it the Dodgers all along? Like, I, I don't know that we'll ever know that um, the answer to that question unless he sort of delves into it. But not unreasonably, a lot of Blue Jays fans had their hopes up. And I think that it was hard to come back from that, from the Blue Jays front office perspective in terms of like, A, like, even if they had gone out and signed another top free agent, which they they didn't really, but I think anyone was going to, you know, never live up to what Shohei Otani would have done, not just for the team in terms of raising the ceiling of the team, but I also think in terms of changing the status of baseball in the country of Canada. Obviously, hockey is number one sport here, and I don't know that Shohei Tani signing like would make baseball eclipse hockey, but I think just in general, in terms of talking about a global audience, talking about a team like the Blue Jays that already represent an entire country, and then you talk about another entire country in Japan – 
this becoming Japan's team as well. So I think that um, in terms of how it could have impacted the Blue Jays, not just on the field, but sort of just globally in terms of an organization, everybody was quite aware of that and how how it could have been, you know, such a massive shift in terms of the sports culture here. And I think it was just very hard for people to let go of what could have been. And I think that with that in the background and then the Blue Jays sort of going out and and making moves that I think probably maintain the floor of the team, but probably haven't raised the ceiling in terms of you're talking about who went in and who went out and what they brought. Like they obviously add Justin Turner and they add, they bring back Kevin Kiermaier, add IKF, but you know, they lose Brandon Bell and they lose uh, Matt Chapman uh, being the big one. So one, it's just like still kind of disappointment over not getting Otani and not having that opportunity for the team and for the country and the sports culture here. And then I think also the fact that the Blue Jays didn't totally pivot to another top free agent. They sort of just went the route of like, we're actually just going to go all in and double down on sort of the stars that we already have and hope that they come out and have a better offensive year. And that's sort of the direction it seems like the team is going in now. I wanted to ask you to what extent you think that they are actually done here because they have, you know, impressive, great players already on their roster. They added guys who, to your point, I think we could probably describe as complementary players more than guys you necessarily win solely because of. But every team needs complementary players, right? Mm-hmm. Like an Isaiah Kyron Falefa has value, um, even if he's not a, a superstar. You know, the same can be said of Turner, et cetera. So there's that reality, but it does feel kind of unfinished as a roster. Do you think that there's any possibility that particularly as his free agency drags on that they circle back to someone like Matt Chapman and maybe think about getting something done on a shorter term deal to reinforce that position and sort of bolster the position player group here? I would say it still feels possible, but I don't know if I would put it as likely. I think that the Blue Jays, at least the way they've sort of navigated and talked about their team leading into spring training and throughout spring training has been a lot of, we like our team, we like our guys, we like the group that we've put together. And like, obviously they're going to say that, like that's just something that you're going to say when you've built a team, you're not going to say that we think we have a missing piece. That you know, is understandable. But I also think like the way they've acted and the way they seem to have pursued the free agent market post Otani seems to be like they believe that their best opportunity to get better is mostly offensively. I mean, if you look at the team last year, they were great pitching wise and they have basically the identical pitching staff. And then they have basically the same defensive core outside of obviously Matt Chapman, who would raise the ceiling a lot defensively. So, but that said, like IKF, his strength is defense. So in terms of Chapman, I wouldn't be shocked if he became a Blue Jay, just because I think that realistically, if you look at like what teams are still players in it, it's probably a small number of teams, the Blue Jays being one, just because they know Chapman, they're familiar with him, he's familiar with the team. I think that Chapman, like he's in a very tough spot right now because if he joins a new team, there's just a condensed period to get to know that team. Obviously, when new guys join a team, the benefit of having such a long spring training is that it gives them time to get to know their team, get to know the staff, get to know the personnel, all that kind of stuff. Um, They have time to do that. And so Chapman's obviously going to have a condensed time period to do that now if he joins a new team. So the advantage of joining the Blue Jays is you know everybody, you know the systems, you just can kind of hit the ground running, so to speak. 
But I also think that, and there's other advantages too, I should say, like Chapman obviously rejected the qualifying offer. So the Blue Jays are one of the few teams that if they signed him, they don't lose a draft pick, right? Because he would just be re-signing with them. So like in that way, like they are a team that you would think that Boris is going to and saying like, you know, sign this guy, you won't even lose a draft pick. Obviously, I think that Chapman comes with significant question marks. I think uh, defensively, he's a great, great player, but offensively, he had some question marks last year um sorry there's like some construction going on i don't know if you can hear it but um <laughs> but um hardly the loudest thing that has uh, made its presence <laughs> felt during the team preview buzz. <laughs> i don't know if it's in construction or my neighbor just has like a really loud like blender or food processor um but anyway uh so chapman just a lot of question marks i think offensively with the jays last year it was just very up and down he, he was like the most incredible player on earth for april and then sort of saw, saw a pretty steep drop off offensively for a couple months. July, he was good. And there's definitely some power there. There's good plate awareness, um, but there is a lot of strikeouts too. And so I think there's there's probably some question marks in terms of the same way that Bellinger faced question marks. And so you look at that sort of short-term opt-out deal um, that Bellinger got. And I think that that's probably a way that Chapman could go too. And, and the Blue Jays maybe would be um, a team that would be willing to do that just because if you talk about a competitive window and you use like Bo and Vlad's free agency to measure that, well, they have two years. Um, so maybe something, a deal like that, but at the same time, like we've gone far enough and they haven't signed Chapman. So unless like it is truly like a one year pillow deal, you know, I, I don't know. Um, again, like I'm not ruling it out, but I'm also not sort of expecting it. Well, while we listen to the mysterious construction sounds, maybe we should talk a bit about the construction that went on at Rogers Center. There's a segue of sorts because (laughs) that, I think, affects the perception of the offensive prowess of this team, right? And it's kind of tough to untangle the differences in some of the individual Jays' performance from the difference in the ballpark, which was pretty significant. And you look at the long-term park factors versus the single-season park factors, it's all kind of complicated, of course, because the Blue Jays were an itinerant team that weren't playing at home for a while there. But what were the net effects, as far as everyone can tell, of the reconfiguration of Roger Center, which I guess you can remind people of the specifics of that if they don't recall what exactly changed about the park? Yeah, I mean, it was it was odd because I think going into the season, we thought that it actually would be a more hitter-friendly park. They moved some fences down in terms of the center field walls a little bit lower. They moved some fences in, especially in right field. Um, Even in the sort of power alleys, I think those both moved in. And so we thought that it was actually going to be a more healthy offensive environment. And it actually was the complete opposite. It ended up being a pretty pitcher-friendly ballpark. And in terms of talking to the team and, and what happened, I mean, I think that they're sort of just leaning on the fact that that it's a small sample size still and they kind of want to see it play out over the course of several seasons before they're willing to sort of, I don't know, speculate on what kind of park they're leaning. Generally speaking, I think Rogers Center was fairly neutral and before games were played there, they thought it would be more neutral. They thought actually like it would be a bit more tricky in the outfield in terms of previously the Rogers Center was very kind of symmetrical, didn't have different sort of like divots and different angles in the outfield. And they did create those with the different walls and shapes. And it ended up, I think, not really being that tricky. I mean, again, the Blue Jays had some very 
elite skilled defensive outfielders, but also like we didn't see very many weird bounces. We were like, whoa, what is happening with the ball there? So <laughs> a lot of things that we thought would happen didn't really happen and almost the complete opposite happened where it was just not very hitter friendly. But I also think it's hard to know how much of it was the park because some of the guys have talked about like they were just confused because sometimes the ball would come off the bat and they think it's going out and then it would just stay in. So then you sort of wonder like, well, is it the the ball? Is it the ballpark? Is it like the humidor that they're using there or whatever? I don't know exactly. And also the Blue Jays in general just were not hitting as many home runs. And I think that I guess you could sort of look closely at everybody's home road splits. And there was some um, difference, I think, in home and road for some of the guys. But overall, the Blue Jays just like weren't as good defensively. They weren't hitting as many home runs. That had dropped a lot. I think it was kind of the similar for other teams too. But I mean, a lot of some teams came in and they hit the ball out of the Rogers Center too. So I don't know how much was the Rogers Center effect and how much of it was just the Blue Jays in general just like weren't as powerful as a team they had been in the past. And overall, offensively, they weren't scoring runs. They weren't scoring runs in bunches. They weren't hitting the home run. And that was the case throughout the whole year. It wasn't just home games. One of the guys who saw his power dip and also contributed to that great defensive outfield, for that matter, was Dalton Varsho, who came over from the D-backs. We talked to Nick Bacoro about sort of the state of that trade and how we might assess the return for both sides. But what do you make of the downtick that he saw at the plate last year? Because he was still a good defender, played left field. I will I eventually forgive the Blue Jays for taking him away from catcher and not giving us that delightful <laughs> bit of <laughs> positional versatility. But his WRC plus dropped from a 107 to an 85. He hit fewer home runs. His isolated power and slugging were both down. So what's going on with Dalton Varsho and what do you expect from him in this season? Yeah, uh, he still is the emergency catcher, and the Blue Jays have really cornered the market in terms of having <laughs> as many catchers as possible on their team, uh, if, you, if you can include IKF as well. But uh, yeah, I, I've talked to Dalton Varsho a little bit you know, this spring and even last year, and he's still a pretty young player. I think that we probably didn't fully understand you know, how difficult it is to be involved in a fairly significant offseason trade, um, to leave an organization that you know really well and sort of to be the central piece of a big trade and coming to a team that is very competitive, although obviously the Diamondbacks ended up being <laughs> more competitive than the Blue Jays making to the World Series. But, you know, Dalton Varsho has talked a lot about putting too much pressure on himself last year, trying to do too much, trying to go up there and be a guy that um, was a big offensive threat, hitting home runs. And I think that even as he got more comfortable with the Blue Jays last year, there's still a bit of that pressure. It's still also try hard to, once you're sort of in that hole offensively, I think it's hard to dig yourself out, even if you are doing the work behind the scenes. And so it felt like he just kind of got stuck in this rut, some of it being sort of self self-inflicted pressure and then sort of trying to dig his way out of it when you're already in a bit of a hole. The good part about it is that he seems to be very skilled at leaving the offense on that side of the ball and then not bringing it into his defense. He talks to me a lot about how being a catcher 
taught him that. Obviously, when you're a catcher, you're so important on the defensive end and for the pitcher that you learn very quickly that you can't take your offense into yeah. the field with you. And so that's um, an asset the, that he has and he's carried on now that he's in the outfield. The, th- the other good thing about him is that he's a very well-rounded player. He might be one of the Blue Jays' sort of best players in terms of just being very, very well-rounded. Like he can bunt for hits. He's very good base runner. He's speedy on the base pass. He's a very cerebral player, very much good at reading the ball, reading situations. As you said, very, very elite defensively. A lot of Blue Jays were sort of a little bit, you know, upset or a little bit um, ticked off that he did not win the gold glove. They're sort of hoping that he could does this year, but he brings a lot to the table. And I think that the Blue Jays and, and Varsho definitely hope that another year in the American League, another year in the AL East, he's more comfortable with the um, the pitchers um, that he's facing. He's more comfortable with the team. And I think something that could help in is, is that I know he's worked really closely with Don Mattingly, even last year when Don Mattingly was more in a bench coach role. Now that Don Mattingly is sort of leading the charge in terms of the Blue Jays hitting coaches, and he's kind of in charge of their hitting approach and strategy and everything. Everything. I think that could be an asset for Varsho just now that he's sort of getting even more instruction from from Don and those that hitting group from the Blue Jays. I like, don't want to root for anything bad to befall Alejandro Kirk or Danny Jansen, but I do I do want to watch Varsho <laughs> catch again. So I don't know, maybe they can get locked in a broom closet or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say if you want to believe in Varsho as a bounce back candidate offensively, his expected weighted on base was essentially unchanged from 22 to 23. So maybe it's just going from good luck to bad luck or at the change in ballpark, right? But the underlying contact quality wasn't so different. And also, I guess the Blue Jays' plan to construct an outfield Voltron defensively worked, right? That paid off completely. They were second in the majors in outfield outs above average, and I think they were first in defensive runs saved and doubled any other team's total. So however you slice it, they really could go get it in the outfield, and that makes up for any lack of hitting. But when we're talking about other candidates to improve or bounce back offensively, you got to go to Vlad, right? Mm -hmm. So Vlad has also been something of a cipher offensively. Is he the guy we saw a couple years ago? Is he the guy we saw a few years ago that really raised expectations for him to be one of the best hitters in baseball? Is he what he was last year, above average, but not really an offensive force? How do you explain the downturn for him and what is he trying to do differently this year? Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, the riddle of that, I suppose, is that there's just so, what, who is he, right? Is he the guy that could be perennial MVP candidate, could be one of the best hitters in all of baseball, or is he just like a very, very, very good um, hitter and that even his down years are better than the average player, still very good. You'll take it, but obviously not at that quite elite level. And so we've seen him do both. We've seen the 2021 season where he was incredible. He would have probably won an MVP if not for Shohei Otani. And then we've seen him the last couple of years where he's been very good, but just not quite at that great level. And so I think that you look at this season and it's 
maybe not as important as next season will be for Vlad, but I also I think it's very, very important in terms of if he can put together another season like he did in 2021, then you're definitely looking at his potential to sign that big long-term contract where he makes a lot of money, whether it's with the Blue Jays, I don't know. But in terms of proving to the industry and to the baseball world that yes, he can be that elite hitter that everybody thought he would be when he was a youngster coming up in the minors, this year matters a lot, I think, because you want to have somewhat of a larger sample size to say you can do it. In terms of like what has gone wrong with him, like I think there's a lot of things. I think that, you know, pitch selection is a big thing for him. Swinging at the right pitches. Um, the thing with him is that he can reach so many different parts of the plate and he's so skilled. He's so elite in terms of the power, bat speed, all that kind of stuff that I think sometimes he just uh, swings at pitches that yes, he can maybe get a hit on or make contact on, but is it the right pitch for him to swing at in terms of doing damage? So that's something that the team always talks about with him is they really, really, really want him to be very selective up there and swinging at the right pitches that he can do the most damage on the most amount of time. The other thing that's always, um, you know, a, a thing that Vlad talks about is just what kind of shape he comes into the season. And he talked to us earlier in spring this year and sort of admitted that maybe last offseason, he didn't have the best year like heading into 2022. Like maybe he didn't um, have his best offseason. Yes, he worked hard, he said, but maybe he didn't work quite as hard as he could have. Maybe he feels some level of regret over that. And so he talked a lot about how this offseason, he really went to work. If anyone follows him on Instagram, you would have seen him posting videos all throughout the offseason um, in terms of, you know, working out at a facility, I think, down in uh, in the Tampa, Florida area. And he came into camp, he looked really good. And I, I know that is such somewhat of a cliche in spring training. You always <laughs> talk about guys in the best shape of their life and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I do remember a similar feeling of seeing him ahead of that 2021 season. And it was a little bit the same where he really learned he has to spend the offseason really getting in the best shape, being at his very best. And then it usually pays off during the season. So, you know, it is a learning process for Vlad. He is still young. I know sometimes people don't want to hear that or they don't want to hear that as an excuse or anything. But again, like you have to remember, he came up very young. He was like a 20-year-old playing in the majors. Um, and so he's still quite young in his career and still kind of learning the ins and outs of how to be a professional and how to come in and, and be at your very best. And so I think for Vlad too, I hope that he just goes out and has fun and, and plays free. I think that was the thing that I think in, in some previous years, especially after 2021, I think he put some pressure on himself to be that guy. But I think during the 2021 season, he actually played quite free. And so I think it's also a little bit about getting back to that for him. It's about getting back to having fun, focusing on the fact that you're playing a game that you love and not thinking you have to go up there and do everything and every at bat, just, you know, relying on, you know, what he knows he can do. And I think that to me, when I've seen him at his best, it's usually when he's playing free, playing just because he loves the game. So if you had asked me to sort of offer odds on a guy who would benefit from the rule changes around stolen bases, I probably would have mentioned Bo Bichette's name. And I say that even though he had a very perplexing base running season in 2022, where at least by our metrics, he did not grade out well. Um, he was caught fairly often relative to his attempts. And I know that last year, especially in the, the latter half of the season, he dealt with injuries that probably affected his ability to to steal effectively. But what is sort of the, the state of uh, Bo Bichette's health? And do you think that we might see something of a, a base running bounce back from him this year? 
Yeah, it's a good question. In terms of health, he seems fully healthy to me, and um, I don't think there's been any lingering questions. I know he talked a little bit about how in the offseason he approaches it like, you know, you're trying to get better all over. But in terms of it's like baseball, if there's a one week spot, you want to pay special attention to improving that, whether it's, you know, a certain part of your swing or a certain part of your mechanics or whatever it may be, or pitch selection, all that stuff. So he kind of talked about that in terms of like getting his body ready. It's like he was working on his entire body, but also paying kind of close attention to the knee and the, the quad area that were that he injured last year, making sure that that is as strong as possible. So he came into camp 100%. I don't think there was any worries with him or any precautions with him. And, you know, he spent the offseason doing sort of different activities, which I think is interesting too when players talk about how they like get into swimming or get into, I think he talked about doing like some Mai Tai or whatever, like the martial arts. And so those are always like, I like to hear about players kind of doing different things in the offseason just to get their bodies ready. But but he looks like Bo. Like I think, like first spring training game, he's knocking a bunch of hits, going the other way. Like he looks like he's in shape um, in terms of baseball shape, in terms of um, just fitness shape and all that kind of stuff. And the base running is a good question. Like I, I thought like you, he could be a guy that would benefit a lot from those rule changes. Um, and he's had a bit of a perplexing run lately of base running. I mean, the Blue Jays in general haven't been a great base running team. They have some guys that are good at reading the situations and, you know, Kevin Kiermeyer, I mentioned Dalton Varsho. Um, they have a few guys that are quite good at that, but in terms of speed, it's not really what they're at and they didn't need it before, right? Like they were a team that just hit a lot of home runs and hit a lot of hit for power. So they didn't really need to worry about stealing so much. So admittedly, I haven't talked deeply with Bo in terms of what his approach might be with base running. Knowing him though, if there was any sort of like weakness or any sort of thing that wasn't quite up to his standard, he will have want to improve it and he will probably do everything he can to improve it. So it wouldn't shock me if we came and saw him look a lot better in terms of base running this year, just because like that's the kind of way he operates. But in general, I don't know what to expect from the Blue Jays in terms of base running. I thought, I think the focus for them is probably just on cleaning it up a lot. I thought that like that was the biggest weakness for them was it's not even that they were overly aggressive and so they were getting caught a lot because they were stealing a lot. It just felt like somewhat sloppy to me a lot of the times that was a big thing for them so I think from their base running perspective from all of them it's just about cleaning it up and making them the better smarter decisions instead of being aggressive to a detriment it's maybe telling that we've just been talking almost exclusively about position players and hitters because people do tend to think of the Blue Jays as a team that rakes which was maybe a little less true last year than it had been for various reasons as we've discussed but the Blue Jays also employ pitchers and some pretty good pitchers so we should talk about some of them. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can start with the rotation, which is a top 10 projected unit here. But there are some question marks. Now, if we start toward the top, I guess, with Jose Brios, who you just wrote about, revisiting the controversial game two <laughs> pulling decision. It was, I think, reassuring, regardless of how that season ended, that he did bounce back after a, a real down year and inconsistent mm -hmm. year in 2022. And I know, speaking of spring cliches, adding a new pitch is another one, but mm -hmm. it does sometimes help. And he has added a cutter, or at least brought back a mothballed cutter, which I recently 
recently learned that David Howell, who is the Blue Jays' assistant pitching coach, former mm-hmm. driveline guy, he wrote a post for the Fangraphs community blog back in 2019 suggesting that Jose Brios throw a cutter. Oh. <laughs> and, and now I guess he has helped him throw a cutter as the person <laughs> who is partly responsible for that. So that's kind of cool. So tell us about that and then really we could just kind of go top to bottom because Alec Manoa could be its own question just Alec Manoa question mark (laughs) yeah I mean Barrios looked great in his first spring outing um, the other day and it feels like we can just look back on the 2022 season and just throw it away in terms of just being an outlier because Brios and one of the reasons why the Blue Jays not just went out and acquired him, but acquired him and then signed him to a long-term extension was that he had just been like the picture of durability and reliability for his entire career. And he's a guy that's, uh, you know, knock on wood, like never been on the IL. He's a guy that is consistently, you know, going fairly deep into games, hauling innings for a team, kind of just being like who he is. And he looked a lot like that last year. He was great. You could say basically the same for the entire rotation. They had a couple of guys that really had to have bounce back years. It was funny, like last year, the rotation had quite a few question marks in terms of how is Brio's going to look? Is Kikuchi going to be able to bounce back as well? And Chris Bassett's joining this um, this team. And then you looked at the rotation last year and you're like, but Alec Manoa, he's a solid, you know, he's going to be their number one. And then it was like the complete opposite where Kikuchi and Barrios have one of their better seasons. Kikuchi was a career season for him. I think it was career high in innings. I think it was his best ERA or season ending ERA. And Barrios was just basically like the guy you expect he was. And and Chris Bassett and, and Kevin Gosman ended up being really, um, really good. Bassett also career high in, in innings pitch, hit uh, hit 200 innings, I think, for the first time in his career. Um, and Gosman just being that kind of consistently reliable number one staff ace and again a Cy Young finalist um, candidate so yeah the the rotation this year you think it looks a lot more solid in terms of you you feel good about the top four the guys that sort of carried you last year but then yes Manoa is obviously a huge question mark he look at last year and just whatever went could go wrong went wrong for him I think again you know similar to Vladdy that he sort of admitted that last year he did not have the best offseason maybe didn't come into camp I remember he said something like he kind of came into camp tweaking things and was tweaking things all throughout camp and never really got to a place where he was happy and then you sort of just start the season and then you're still kind of tweaking 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 always looking for solutions and you just never really find it and so it felt like last year you know there was a lot going on for him Obviously was not, you know, not, not pitching well, you know, again, talk about fitness, getting in shape. He went away this offseason. He looks great. He was kind of the guy that everybody was talking about early in camp in just terms of, you know, looking definitely trimmer, looking like a lot stronger, kind of just looking like he doesn't have to sort of force the velocity. I think last year that was a thing. The velocity was down and it was trying to force it. I think it was trying to force a lot of things, which was obviously just causing all kinds of problems. Um, he I think the team has talked a lot about how he's looked smoother mechanically. The delivery d- delivery is more repeatable, or he's been able to repeat the delivery better. Um, and now the first spring start didn't go great for him in terms of he hit, I think, three batters, uh, allowed like four runs or something, but the velocity was up. And so I think the team was just sort of pleased to see the velocity was up. He was feeling good on the mound, feeling healthy on the mound. And so I think it's fair to toss the first spring start out. Maybe there's some nerves going on. Even the first couple starts in spring probably as long as you're seeing the process go well the blue jays are not too concerned about the results but at the same time like this is an important year for him um the blue jays 
don't have a ton of patience in terms of they, they can't sort of ride out a long-term struggles with him. You know, last year he struggled and it was June where they sent him down finally. I don't know what would happen this year. They've done a little bit in terms of depth. They have Bowden Francis who could come up and as a starter. They have Mitch White um, who's had a bit of a bounce back himself after kind of a rough first half last year. Um, Miriel Rodriguez, they signed him. So there's some guys that could, and then Ricky Tiedemann, I guess you should mention him. He has had a sort of minor setback in camp, but I think he's throwing again. So there's some guys sort of knocking on the door who could be behind Manoa. So I think Manoa will get the chance to break camp with the team. Everybody's sort of talked about that, but it is a pretty big year for him in terms of if the wobbles continue, if there are struggles, I do think the Blue Jays don't have a sort of a huge runway for him to work it out in the major leagues. I think you'll probably see a quicker pull in terms of like, we got we got to put someone else in there. Yeah, I wanted to ask about two of the guys you just mentioned and Rodriguez and Tiedemann because Rick Tiedemann's been great when he has pitched, but obviously they've been quite careful with how he's been deployed. You know, he's not, um, over the last year, wasn't doing much more than like three innings at a time. He looked fantastic in the fall league. And we we kind of speculated at Fangraphs that they might be kind of keeping him loose to potentially deploy him in some kind of a bullpen role if, if the need arose uh, in their postseason run. So what do you expect in terms of his timeline this year, both how soon do you think he'll be ramped up to throwing sort of a starter's complement of innings? And then what do you envision the role being for him eventually? Yeah, in terms of role, like I think that he probably starts the season in AAA. Hopefully he starts the season healthy in AAA. Like I said, he had that kind of minor setback with some hamstring tightness. But he, the last day that I was there, which was which was yesterday, Thursday for me, he was throwing again or throwing a side session. So it looks like he shouldn't be too far behind in camp. I think that he should be able to start the year in AAA. And it's sort of all about performance for him, I think. At the major league level, there would have to be an opportunity, whether it is an injury, whether it's, you know, someone is underperforming in the rotation and they need to make a swap. I almost look at it similarly like the way Alec Manoa came up back in 2021, I think, was his first season. And I can't remember exactly, but it was the Blue Jays had an injury or they had an opening in the rotation and they called called Manoa up. And he had a great first start in New York and just ran with it. And I think that the same pathway could be there for Tiedemann, you know, if the opportunity is there. And I don't know what would happen if there is a hole in the Blue Jays rotation they need to fill. I think the Blue Jays are more than willing to give Ricky that um, opportunity. At the same time, uh, as you mentioned, he hasn't pitched a lot. He didn't pitch very many innings last year. And so it's unlikely that he's going to go from whatever he was at somewhere like 40 something innings in the season, then a little bit more in the, in the fall league. So he's not going to jump to 200 innings this year, both because he's a young guy. He hasn't pitched that much and they just got to be careful with him. But as you guys probably know, like there's so many ways that they can track like workload now that I don't think they're just looking at it as like, oh, this is the number of innings that we have to cap him at. I think there was a goal, there's an idea, but I don't think they want to set like a hard limit on him to say like, this is how many you'll throw because, you know, if he's performing well and he's feeling healthy and, you know, all the sort of background numbers and things that they look at look good, I, I don't know that they'd put like a hard cap on it though. Again, like it's not like you're going to see him come and pitch 200 innings um, or anything like that. So, I think that it's just like a bit of a fluid situation. I think that they they have a lot of belief in him. They really like him. And you mentioned like a bullpen role, and that that's always something that could you know be possible. Sometimes that really works for guys too. Like if even if you want them to be a starter in the long term, like right. if there is an Trampoline. opportunity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If there's late in the year, give him some opportunity in the major leagues to prove himself. And whether it's a postseason run or whether it's a, you know, push in September, I think that could be a pathway for him too and something that he would probably be really good at as well. 
And then in terms of Rodriguez, what does the org see as his eventual role? Or maybe what are they hoping it to be? Because I know that he started for Cuba's WBC team, but his big velo boost in Japan came when he moved to the bullpen. So what do they envision him as? I think they're willing to honor his wish to try to be a starter. Um, yeah. They're stretching him out this camp. And he talked a little bit earlier in camp just about how he sees himself as a starter. He really loves to be a starter. And I think that, you know, any team would probably say, like, if a guy has good stuff and he can he can pitch deep into games, you want to try him out as a starter, right? Like, they're more valuable. There's more upside to having a starter. So I think the Blue Jays are willing to give him that opportunity. I think that this year could be pretty low stakes year for him, too. I think that while in theory he's competing for a job in camp, I think there's they're taking it slow with him just because he did miss most of last season in terms of just not pitching professionally. He spent the year sort of working in sort of hopes to make that transition to the major league. So obviously he was throwing and stuff like that, just not at the sort of professional um, competitive level. And so I think the Blue Jays, like, again, would probably look at this year as like fairly low stakes for him. Like, can we just use this year to transition him to the North American game? And whether that is stretching him out and putting him in AAA and having him as a starter there. And if he's thriving there, then yes, he's totally an option to come up as a spot starter if the Blue Jays need him. But I think like, you know, if, if starting doesn't work out, there's a very viable backup plan to have him as a reliever, whether it's a long reliever, um, whether it's someone that comes in and just throws one inning. Um, like you mentioned, the velocity spike happened when he was more in that role in Japan. So I think there's different ways that you could go with him, but I'm sort of just looking at this year as like, this is just about transitioning him to the game. And if he makes that tra transition very quickly, then it's all the better. Like that's a good problem to have for the Blue Jays if they're talking about, you know, having six or seven starter options and so many options for their bullpen. I think they'd be happy with that. But I think there's probably not a lot of pressure on him to necessarily like be a guy, be a starter this year, be a reliever this year. I think to me this year is mostly because they did sign him for like what five years or four four years four years five years can't remember exactly it's a kind of a unique contract I think it's all about transitioning for him this year I think and and the Blue Jays I think are willing to be patient with that. Well, we've gotten all the way to the end here. I was going to ask the closing question and then realize that we never actually talked about Davis Schneider. Now, maybe <laughs> that reflects the realistic outlook for Davis Schneider. Davis Schneider, over under 1,000 OPS in his sophomore season. No, I don't want to <laughs> saddle him with those sorts of expectations. But are we talking about fun flash in the pan here? Or is there a chance that he could actually be a key contributor again? We have to sort of wait and see. Like, I think that his first appearance in the major leagues was a like a real different story. You had most incredible, like, uh, like player, a hitter, I think breaking all these MLB records in terms of, you know, OPS over first 25 games or whatever it was. And really, like, the Blue Jays look at what he did in that few week span when he came up and he kind of saved their season or at least kept them relevant enough um, that they could hold on to a playoff spot. I mean, they were really spiraling and sinking for a while there, and he gave them a huge spark. So for that, they are probably eternally grateful for him. And I think that that is enough to earn him a long look this spring. I think it's a crowded competition, though, what he's looking at in terms of there's probably 
one or two or three spots for their infield and bench. And they've brought in guys like Escobar, veterans like Escobar. They brought in Daniel Vogelbach. And then you have other guys like Espinal, Ernie Clement, and guys that are fighting for that sort of second base bench utility role. There's a lot of names in there. And I think that Davis gives them, you know, I like Davis as an option off the bench in terms of giving them power. That's something that he can really do. There is a lot of strikeout in his game. I mean, he walks, but there's strikeout in his game. But I think that he's going to have every opportunity to make the team in camp, probably looking at what he did last season, gives him somewhat of a leg up in terms of the Blue Jays sort of feel like he's earned that opportunity. But at the same time, like, there's other guys that are fighting for that role too. And so there's, you know, there's potential that he starts the year in AAA and gets called up. Um, there's potential that he does make the team, but still has to kind of perform. And so the Blue Jays do have sort of a surplus of kind of a similar guy in terms of guys that like don't totally have a position <laughs> and um, just kind of do a lot of things. So it's kind of interesting to me how that is going to turn out. But in terms of like a, a great story, um, in terms of a guy that people love, I mean, Davis is right up there. You see Davis Schneider shirts everywhere. <laughs> and uh, right. so I think the, the fans want him, but we'll see. Okay. Well, our traditional ending question here, what constitutes success for this team? Now the Blue Jays have been successful. They have had a winning record four seasons in a row in a tough division. They've made the playoffs three of those years, but there is still a perception that they have not fully harnessed their potential. Mm -hmm. They have not reached their ceiling. So what do they have to do to do that this season? Is it winning a division title? Is it winning a playoff series? What is the goal for them realistically and aspirationally? Yeah, like it's interesting. Like I, prior to spring training, I did a, a fan, Blue Jays fan survey, right? So I put up all these questions and um, subscribers of The Athletic can vote in terms of how they're feeling about the team. And as you might expect, sort of the general vibe or feeling around the team was one of sort of lowered confidence and, and growing disinterest just because of like all the things that we talked about before in terms of underperforming last year, the offense not being as exciting as it's been, the sort of letdown of the offseason, not getting Shohei Otani. So all these things are swirling. And also just sort of the still the um, sort of bitter taste in the mouth of how last year ended in terms of getting swept again out of the postseason, getting swept in sort of self-inflicted fashion, if you want to call it, in terms of the game two decision. And you look at the year before and as the, the total collapse against Seattle. So not a pretty story for the Blue Jays in the postseason. And so I actually asked this exact question in terms of to the fans, like, what do you think constitutes success for this team? And in prior years, it's just been like, you know, getting into the postseason. It's hard to get into the postseason for a team. And it's, you know, it's a it's an achievement to make it to the postseason. But I think Blue Jays fans and the team in general are sort of sick of that. They want to see more. And I think that Winning a, a playoff series is like the bare minimum at this point. Like they have to do that. They have to, they have to win a playoff series. And I'd argue they have to actually make some noise and go on a run. Like I think advancing to the ALCS is something that the fans are expecting. And I don't think that's unfair. Like I think that they've been promised um, a contending team. They've been, uh, you know, they've been a team that have been 
out there in free agency and adding top guys, you know, Gosman, Springer, Bassett, all these guys. They have uh, built a core that is should be one of the best sort of lineups in baseball if you just look at one through nine. And I, I think that they have underachieved in the postseason the last couple of years. Um, and so they need to be playing their best baseball. The division is going to be very competitive again. The Yankees look a lot better this year. The Orioles are still moving up. The Rays, you can never count them out. And, you know, you got the Blue Jays too. And so it's going to be a very tough division. Winning the division would be great because then, you know, they finally don't have to do that wild card series. They give themselves a bit of a cushion there. But I think regardless, they have to win some playoff series. They probably need to win <laughs> at least one round, if not two. Um, they got to make some noise. And I think that is what you measure as success for this team. And I think everybody around the team believes that. And I think the Blue Jays know that. They've said enough. They've said like, yeah, we're going to say we uh, we want to be a contending team and we want to make some noise, but we, we have to go out and prove it. Like, don't take us at our word. Like, we got to go out and prove it. Well, this has been a meaty, substantial preview, but I can't let you leave without asking this last question. When you talk about spring sensations, the stories of the spring, you got the new uniforms, you got Shohei Otani's surprise wedding, and you've got Blue Jays bench coach Don Mattingly's facial hair. Yes. George Steinbrenner <laughs> rolling over in his grave. Can you give us an in-person <laughs> scouting report on the big bushy beard that Mattingly <laughs> debuted this year? Yeah, it's impressive. I um I like the look. It's like uh he's kind of shifted roles a little bit. He's more in charge of hitting now and he just uh he he rocks it. I mean, he I guess all those years with the Yankees like not being able to have any facial hair, like yeah. now he's just going full out with it and he seems to be trimming the beard. Like I feel like it was a lot bushier like a start of spring and like now that maybe the season's like getting closer, like he's trimming it a little bit, but it's a look like hopefully hopefully the Blue Jays get off to like a great offensive start and then like the beard just keeps growing <laughs> <laughs> right it becomes a, a rally beard a playoff yeah, beard exactly. and it just gets bigger and bigger well to follow all the storylines about the blue jays in 2023 will you say kikuchi get enough sleep will the fogo de chow near roger center open in time to supply fogo power to eduardo escobar if he should make the roster and will the blue jays win the al east and or win a playoff round you can get the answers to all those questions at The Athletic from Caitlin McGrath. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Of course. Thank you for having me once again. All right. Speaking of fellas with notable beards, see Trent Rosecrans, who covers the Reds for The Athletic, is another robust beard haver. We'll be back with him after one more quick break. Effectively Manessis, no. walk off three-run digger. Stop it. <laughs> walk off three-run shot. Oh, my God. Meg, he's the best player in baseball. Effectively well, historically, we have joked on Effectively Wild about not talking about the Cincinnati Reds. We've talked about them a whole lot lately, at least relative to how often we used to talk about them. But even when we had a running bit about not talking about them, we always previewed their season nonetheless. It was just that we didn't talk about their actual season when it was happening so much. But that has changed. And there are a lot of reasons to talk about the Reds these days. So we will preview their season now with a senior writer for The Athletic, C. Trent Rosecrans, who covers the Reds. Hello, Trent. Hello, Ben. Hello, Mac. 
Hello. So I guess I'll start with a player who is no longer a Cincinnati Red, and that is weird. (laughs) It is strange to be able to say that. Joey Votto. Now, you have talked to Joey Votto as much as any member of the media, I would imagine, if not more so. So you are probably feeling the difference, the absence, and Reds fans are probably feeling it too. So I don't know whether you've been in touch with him about his ongoing job search. I wonder whether he'll land anywhere. But tell us a little bit about the end of the Joey Votto era. What convinced the Reds that they were ready to move on? And how does that change the clubhouse dynamic or just the identity of this team? Yeah, it's really kind of interesting. I, You know, the Reds, I, I think if they were in a different position, they could do like that one more year, victory lap year. Yeah. But, but they're just, they're not. It, it was one of those things where I think a thought of people thought like, hey, do you think this could work? And the second that they signed Jamer Candelario, who, who serves a similar but expanded role as what Joey Votto would, it was like the writing was on the wall, but that was like a spotlight on that writing that was on the wall and just <laughs> saying, here, this is it. So, yeah, it is super weird, but it's also these things happen. You know, I, I Joey Votto's true rookie year, he debuted in 2007, but 2008 was his true rookie year. You know, you think about it, that's the year that Ken Griffey Jr. left and was traded. Mm-hmm. All respect to Joey Votto, who I think is a no doubt Hall of Famer and everything. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. is Ken Griffey Jr. And he was from here, all those kind of things. So I think there's, there is something about just saying like these, these things pass. I, I was here for the end of the Barry Larkin era. Again, another hometown guy. And that wasn't particularly, I mean, time has healed a lot of those wounds, but that wasn't exactly a like perfect breakup. Uh, and, and none of these were. And there's just, I mean, I, I think we could all say this. Has any of us ever had a perfect breakup? you know you you have some that are better or worse than others but i don't know that anybody's ever had a perfect one and and that's kind of where we are especially like one that really is joey Votto's entire adult life it comes down to joey still thinks he can play and he thinks he can play every day and he thinks the the struggles of the last two seasons have been more about that shoulder injury than the passage of time or whatever else. And so that's where we are. Somebody else is going to have to think that as well. And at at this point, nobody is there that we know of. The last I talked to Joey, I talked to him on the phone in January at one point, and then we've texted a couple times and and I've kind of left him alone. I I, I guess my last text was after pitchers and catchers reported, but before position players reported, just kind of, to be respectful and like, I, I, I'm sure the everybody is asking him this and Joey is the type that if there were something that he wanted to get out there, he knows how to do it. You mentioned Candelario as a reason that his services were perhaps not needed in Cincinnati, but 
Candelario's far from the only infielder on the Reds <laughs> roster. If if the Padres are made up entirely of shortstops, uh, the Reds are made up entirely of uh, infielders more generally. So there's Candelario, there's Ellie De La Cruz, there's Noel V. Marte, there's Jonathan India, there's Christian Encarnacion Strand, there's potentially Spencer Steer, depending on how you feel about his defense, Matt McLean. So it feels like they have too many guys for too few positions, um, many of whom are very exciting and sort of part of what I imagine they hope their young core to be going forward. So how do you see the playing time and positional allotments shaking out here? Yeah, I, I think with everything, this is kind of when you're talking about the Reds and the Reds of 2024, everything starts with Ellie Dale Cruz, right? And so that's where you start. Ellie De La Cruz is going to pretty much be the the everyday or most everyday shortstop of this team. And from there, you kind of build out, right? Uh, that means the, the other guy who, who would have claim to that would be Matt McClain. McClain, when he was on the field, had as good a season as any rookie last year save Corbin Carroll. But even then, like you kind of look at it and like the last season, if he goes this way, that's a lot of ifs, whatever, you know, he's still second in that rookie of the year, but he he's second in that rookie of the year conversation. He is probably your most everyday second baseman. So what does that mean for Jonathan India? Well, India, who is still dealing with uh, kind of the effects, like they're, they're kind of slow playing the plantar fasciitis, my very basic understanding of all this, uh, Dr. Rosecrans is my sister, not myself. Um, the, the the tendon or whatever is already torn, so it can't get worse. But they're just trying to ease him in so that he's on his feet less and all this. Which sounds like a great combination with learning to play the outfield for the first time, of course. Uh, so so there is that. But like, India's going to be a rollish player, I guess, playing second base some days, first base, like second days when McLean has a day off, second base when Ellie has a day off, um, some first base, some DH, maybe some left field. He's, he's, he's run around out there, but that's where Spencer Steer is. And, and, you know, when you talk about India, Steer, Encarnacion Strand, you're all talking right-handed bats. And uh, they don't have a whole lot of left-handed bats. Uh, it, you know, McLean as well. And it is weird to think. Uh, Noel V. Marte, not in games yet, but still doing fine, looking fine, whatever. He had a uh, hamstring issue in, in the Winter League. And yeah. has been... I mean, I, I've seen him up close. He's just not in games. And I've seen him right. doing everything that everybody... You know, spring training stuff. You guys know this. Um, so he's, he's not in Cactus League games, but he's still doing stuff and they expect it just to be fine. They're just being cautious, him in India. But it does make you question like, okay, how is this all going to work every day? And, and that's usually like a later in spring thing where you see, okay, our regulars are playing every day um, and they're not there yet. But it will be interesting to see how this is juggled. That also means that Spencer Steers in left field. And what does it mean for Christian Encarnacion Strand? Uh, some first base, some DH. Candelario, third base, first base. Maybe more first base and DH than than third base, depending on the health of Noel V. Marte. Because Noel V. Marte, I mean, sorry, Meg, um, he's really good. He's yeah. really good. That's going to be something to watch. I think he's ready to play and play every day and give them a lot of production. 
Do you think there's a risk from a developmental perspective in positional uncertainty? Of course, a lot of teams are prioritizing positional versatility and flexibility, but there's always some hesitation when it comes to top prospects, moving them around, not knowing where they're going to play from day to day. You look at Nick Senzel's career with the Reds, and that was always an issue, right? Is he a center fielder? Is he an infielder? Where in the infield? I think you would know better than I, but I think he talked about how it's tough to deal with that kind of uncertainty. So is there a risk there with this wave of young players just kind of being unmoored from a particular position? Certainly. You know, say let's let's kind of go like hypothetically. Usually if you're Ellie De La Cruz in the minor leagues, you're playing shortstop every day, right? Like in, in most other times in the red system, it, most systems, he's just in the minor leagues coming up playing every day. He he's not done that through the minor leagues. He he'll probably play shortstop if, if health, you know, blah blah blah, what happens. He'll probably play shortstop more this year than he has since in his pro career. More than he has in his pro career because he he was flip-flopping on an, at, at low A with Jose Torres, and, and a lot of this was was just to kind of get him used to things and playing third base when Torres was at short and shortstop when put Torres at, at second. Then they did the same thing with him and Matt McClain, both in double A in 2012 and then triple A in 2013 before Matt McClain came up. And those two were used to that flip-flop. And they did that a little bit last year. And I think this year it's more like, okay, no, this is where we're going. Um, And then Marte got added to this mix and he came up a little bit later and was introduced to third base. He told me um, it was like kind of the first time he'd really played it was in the Arizona Fall League in 2012 and then played it last year and still played shortstop in Louisville, but then played some third base too. So they kept them moving in the minors. So that's a long-winded, I I know that's redundant when you're talking to me, but that's a (laughs) long-winded way of saying they kind of prepared for this and like positional security is not something any of these guys have had as pros. Mm -hmm. And there actually might have more now in the big leagues than they did anywhere in the minor leagues. Was it surprising to you, to others in the Reds' orbit, when Candelario was maybe their big offseason acquisition or, or one of them? Because yeah. the, the terms of the contract in isolation weren't so shocking or surprising. Candelario's a nice player. I think there are some performance-related concerns, age-related concerns, etc. But it just felt like the Reds, really? <laughs> and Yeah, and like, where's the fit? Right. right. And and when you're a team like the Reds that at least professes to be somewhat constrained from a payroll perspective, why is that the area where you choose to invest? Right. You know, I've asked this question and I've gotten told like the thoughts like, well, we need more versatile players and veterans. Switch hitting bat can do a lot of things. All understandable. You know, a lot of it is hedging your bets, saying like, hey, we have four guys who debuted last year in the infield and all took these positive steps. Are you banking on all four continuing those steps this year? I mean, there is a lot of contingency plan here with Candelario. This move's not done a couple of years ago when there's no DH in the National League. Um, that's a huge part of this. 
Um, the fact that he's a switch hitter, the fact that, you know, his very good reputation as kind of a clubhouse guy. And I think that is something that they've looked at a lot with everybody they added. You know, you talk Brent Suter, Nick Martinez, Frankie Montas, Josh Harrison, Tony Kemp. Uh, these guys have certain reputations in the game of those kind of uh, influences. And I think that's a big part of it. And also with Candelario, just getting him kind of like a veteran guy who's done this, who is is born in New York, but but really by all accounts, I mean, they moved to the Dominican Republic when he was younger. He is Dominican. To have him around, that they feel trusted for this to be a guy around Ellie De La Cruz, but also Marte and, and, and McLean and these other guys. And I think that's a big part of it is just how he fit in the clubhouse as much as how he fit on the field. And honestly, like from what I've seen so far, the clubhouse fit has been a lot easier for me to wrap my head around being in that clubhouse than, than really the on-field fit. Do you think that that versatility that all of these guys bring, the contingency plans, does the value of that sort of foreclose any further trade talks specifically around India? Because I know this has been sort of a bugaboo that has haunted him for the last couple of seasons and is probably going to uh, intensify if all of those guys hit the ground running. So like, where where do they see India organizationally at this point? I, I think they really like Jonathan. The outfield thing might be... You know, they went to Spencer Steer to go to the outfield first. Not that Spencer's, like, his... He passed the eye test last year, but he didn't pass the metric test in the outfield. He's one of those guys who you can put a lot of places, and he'll look okay. Um, The metrics will tell you eh, a little different story. But he's not that glaring. And, I mean, I still think there's a great... The defensive metrics are so much better than they were in the past, but they're still not gospel to me. I mean, correct me if, if if either of you believe they are now. No. But it is something that he just doesn't look... He doesn't look awful. You know, um, the metrics don't look nice, but, like, the eye test you watch every day, and the metrics may say he's hurting you, but, like, to the eye, it doesn't look like he is. And there's... So, so maybe the truth is somewhere there in the middle. It's 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 weird, but it's also telling that that they said, okay, we got Candelario. Spencer Steer's an outfielder now. That's our left fielder. We filled that left field hole with Spencer Steer by moving him there by gaining Candelario. Um, that that's kind of the company line. We'll see how it goes. Um, but but you know they also don't have then like their other three other outfielders, primary outfielders, are all left-handed hitters too. Um, with Steer being the one right-handed bat and him not really being a true outfielder. I, I, I kind of got stuck on this last year. I was like, do you guys have enough left-handed bats last year? And, and I'm still asking that question. The Reds have talked about bunting a lot this spring, and I don't say that in a derogatory way that you might expect to— No, they're, they're not talking about sacrifice bunting. Right, And I exactly. think that's, what, yes. that's the thing that we need to talk about a lot is like when we talk about bunting, because I hate the sacrifice bunt. Exactly. Um, we always want to draw that distinction. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> bunting for a hit is more entertaining and also just a better play generally. And we did a stat blast on episode 2084 about how bunting has been successful. Bunting for hits now that it's not pitchers doing it. It's rarer. Maybe it's more successful, more skilled bunters are doing the bunting. Teams are not defending against bunting as well. And so it is a defensible strategy to emphasize. And so they have talked it 
up a lot. I know Brett Butler's been in camp again working on bunting, which TJ Friedel said was awesome. Of course, TJ Friedel would say it was awesome. He yeah. had the majors in bunt hits last year, which I'm, was pretty awesome. So He, he was close to a 2020 guy. 20 bunt yeah. hits and 20 homers. He got <laughs> yeah, the homers. 17, 17 bunt hits. He was almost there. He's a fun player, pretty good player. So is this just the, the Friedel approach spreading to the rest of the team? Or do the Reds uh, think that there's like a inefficiency here? We've, we've gone away from bunting too much. I think there's a let's see if anybody else can do it. Hey, TJ, this was huge for TJ, especially against left-handed pitchers. That, that made him, really, his, his ability to bunt gave them the confidence to play every day, no matter what hand the pitcher was throwing with. And that was important. And so he was their center fielder. Like, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. He, he might have hit lower against left-handers in the, in the lineup and not leading off. But still, he's there and he, he's fine. I don't think you're going to see a whole lot more bunts. Uh, what this is, is they have a lot of really fast guys. They were the fastest team in baseball last year, and that was with Ellie coming up halfway through the season in June um, in McLean and in May. And, you know, guys like Jason Fossler playing before that. This is an extremely fast team. And I, I think the talk is mostly everybody knows TJ Friedel's going to bunt. <laughs> but I think there's more of the thought of like, hey, you know what? Ellie might lay one down. And I know, like, I forget which manager said it, or somebody told me their manager said, like, oh, he wants to bunt? Let him bunt all day. If he can do it, if he just gets three or four, that puts something in your mind, but yet nobody's going to be playing in. Are you a third baseman? Are you going to play in on Ellie De La Cruz? Right. Like, on the grass where they play TJ Friedel? I wouldn't be that brave. Or, or maybe use your other adjective that you might want to use there. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing on that is, is like at some point, and if say Ellie's on base bunting, uh, that means there's probably nobody else on base, right? And so what's more dangerous an Ellie De La Cruz, the possibility of an Ellie De La Cruz solo homer or uh, Christian Carnacion Strand, uh, Matt McLean, Jonathan India, uh, Noel V. Marte, Jamer Candelario at, at the plate with Ellie De La Cruz on the base paths. We've seen what happens with Ellie De La Cruz on the base paths. He's a triple. Like, you know, a bunt for him, for the most part, is a triple. It, it, it's just, it's crazy. I think everybody kind of feels that way. Maybe it's better to have him on the base paths and pitchers, like every batter you'll say, like, uh, they notice a difference. <laughs> from pitchers when Ellie's on the base paths. And that is getting those multiple runs as opposed to the don't let the solo home run hurt you. Yeah, and we can stipulate that it's been well documented that when teams say, we're going to do this, we're working on this <laughs> in spring, that may very well mean nothing. <laughs> right? Everyone's yeah. Yeah. trying to get the fundamentals down and we're going to be more aggressive on the bases and, you know, it's uh, best laid plans. I, I would be surprised to see this being a storyline. Bunting, mm -hmm. other than TJ Friedel. So they have all of this enviable depth on the position player side, and they reinforced that depth this offseason. And then you look to what they've done in the starting rotation, and I think that there's a 
it seems like the Reds have sort of embraced volatility, hoping that it will be positive volatility in some of their signings here. So they brought in Frankie Montas. They signed Nick Martinez, whose role I want to ask you about in a second. But give us give us kind of a, a sense of where the rotation stands right now, because it seems as if Hunter Green, Graham Ashcraft, and Montas and Andrew Abbott are solidly in the mix will be in the rotation, but that fifth starter spot seems a little more up for grabs and I'm not sure kind of what the depth is um, behind that, that they would be the most likely to turn to right away. So give us, give us sort of the state of the union when it comes to the Reds rotation. Yeah. I'm not even sure I would put Abbott as a definite and Mm. and that's mostly because he has options, right? So many of these things fall to who has options and who doesn't. Yeah. So, so like if Nick Martinez, I could see Nick Martinez starting the season in the rotation and then going to the bullpen. Um, that's what they've said the whole time. It's like, hey, we're going to give you a chance to start and you could still relieve. And that's what Nick has said the whole time, too. He's like, I prefer to start, but I'm good with either. I see Hunter Green, Graham Ashcraft, and Frankie Montas as those locks. But Montas and Martinez can't be optioned. Uh, Green and Ashcraft have options, but they've been, they're solidly there. Abbott was really good for his first 10 starts, and then his second 10 starts, not as good. Uh, I, I don't think that he's in that position, especially with the other starters that they do have, to say that, yeah, he, he's there. You have Brandon Williamson. Look at what Brandon Williamson did last year. Did we forget about Nick Lodolo? Um, I, I'm not sure if Nick is going to be ready, ready at, at the start of the season. He might be a week or two behind, and that might allow them to do like, hey, Nick Martinez, have a couple starts and figure it out or somebody else. But, you know, it's funny, like you just kind of look and like they have guys, Nick Lodolo, Brandon Williamson, Lion Richardson, Connor Phillips and Carson Spires, who all debuted last year or well, um, Lodolo didn't. But Williamson, Richardson, Phillips, Spires and Abbott all debuted last year, and they like all those guys. What they're going to do is have depth at the AAA level. That's not something they had last year. Yeah. You know, I think it was kind of our beginning of spring interviews. We were talking, and I was talking, I said something to Nick Kroll about, like, well, Louisville's going to be a lot different this year. Pat Kelly's got to be a little bit happier. If you look at all these guys, really, there are 10 guys in the competition for the five starting spots and eight of them have options. I was like, you know, Pat Kelly, the the manager there in Louisville has to be a lot happier because you look at what happened last year and they're pulling guys out of of independent ball to start there. And then in the big leagues, you know, they, they had some interesting starters last year. Like, I think I said something in the crawl about Pat Kelly, and his response was about Louisville's pitching last year was that they had a really good offense, and that's why they had a winning record, because they had a really good offense, and that's true. So this year might be a little bit different, where they're kind of loaded in AAA, uh, not with the offense, because, again, that's what we were just talking about, is all those guys who started last year in Louisville taking them into the, the offensive help, and then having these guys pitching now, It'll be a pitching-heavy team in Louisville versus an offensive-heavy team in Louisville, which they had last year. 
So it's a projected top 10 rotation. It's a projected bottom 10 bullpen. And as you're saying, there's some fluidity there, but they have made some additions and reinforcements, Pagan, Suter, et cetera. But how do you see this group stacking up behind Diaz? It's hard sometimes because you look at these numbers, right? And like with starters, we kind of have an idea what's going to happen. Bullpens, unless you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're they're yeah. like I mean I, it was I just, a, a top five bullpen last year by FanGraphs right. War. And so, it's, yeah, and it's like the same um, with some additional strength there. Guys who have more of a little track record now. Does it have the same performance? That's impossible to to guess. And evidence of baseball of the last twenty years suggests that that's not a repeatable thing, except for the very top end guys like an Alexis Diaz or Nate or his brother or something like that. But but yeah, like they have guys that they they like and they trust. You know, you have guys. The only the guys with options in that bullpen are Sam Ball has one. Um, Fernando Cruz has options, relievers, I guess TJ Antone, Alex Young has options, Casey Legamina has options. So that's something that they'll have to play around with, and we'll see. I, I don't think that they feel uncomfortable with their bullpen because it is all people that they know and people that they know have had some success and have had, for the most part, success in a Reds uniform. Seems like people have been raving about Frankie Montas this spring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was uh, another one where, you know, you're taking a risk there with that signing based on his track record. So, what are they hoping or expecting to get out of him? And how has he looked so far? He's, he's looked great. Everybody has raved about him. Every catcher I talk to, their eyes light up when I ask them about catching Montas. I was talking to Emilio Pagan, who was his teammate in in Oakland. Emilio just said he looks as good as he ever did in Oakland. Now, that's February talk, right? Mm-hmm. And and we'll see in March and see with his history. You know, shoulders are iffy, but there are very few starters where I don't go, ooh, I'm worried about his health. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what pitcher are you confident that they'll be healthy? Um like, I just remember, like, well, at least for the Diamondbacks signed Bronson Arroyo. At least you know he'll be healthy. And, <laughs> you know, famous last words. The hope is that he's a lot more expensive next year. He is on a one-year deal. And so it's very, very possible that he's on a one-year deal and does really well. And everybody's happy and he's not a red next year. But it's almost like if he's not a red next year, that's almost a really good thing, right? Um, because it means that unless he's out of the game, but it means that he probably did well enough that somebody else wants to wants him and wants to give him money. I have spent very little time this off season thinking about Red's ownership, which I think is um, a positive development compared to some prior off seasons. A lot of that has to do with them actually spending some money, certainly, but I'm curious if organizationally there's been any reflection on the way that they, as a group, talk about the team and how they want to position it relative to the rest of the division and the rest of the National League, because um, they've had some foot-in-mouth moments over the years, uh, and seems like they've largely avoided those this this winter. So what are, what's the state of affairs with uh, the ownership group? Yeah, they're not talking, which is <laughs> probably a good thing. <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, I don't know that, you know, 
anybody's seen Phil Castellini in the last year. Yeah. I know. I've actually seen him, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're not, he's not someone they, they're putting out front and center. I, I think what they're doing is smart. Anytime they put out ownership, they put out one of these young players. And they say, okay, look at us. We would rather you think of Ellie De La Cruz than think right. of Phil Castellini. And so they've been very conscious of not being the story. And I was actually surprised to see that they have, I think, the sixth lowest payroll because they were pretty active this offseason and they did do some spending, which I guess tells you where they were before they did that spending. But, or what came off the books. Right, exactly. And so I wonder whether there is still room to grow there. Obviously, they have all these young guys who are in the phase of their careers where they're just not making a lot of money. But do they have the willingness and capacity to add as this season goes on or in future winters? I think so. You know, I don't think they're going out and looking at Snell or anything right now, but I think that it's something that they would keep an eye out at the deadline. They have flexibility. They can add something at the, at the deadline. They had a lot of money come off the books last year with, with the end of the Joey Votto era. He made 25 million last year. Uh, Mike Moustakis made what 16 or $17 million last year. It was one of his more productive years in his Reds contract, um, for the Reds at least, uh, being a zero war for the Reds, which and as opposed to well, I don't know. Am I being am I being fair that he was a negative war before that? But it, it wasn't great. They they had that come off the book, and I think this is more like where they feel comfortable payroll wise, but it's not it's not debilitating. That is why you build. Like they built through their system and through the trades as they did um, so that you don't spend all that much money, that you're not chasing some of these other guys. Yeah, uh, Mike Moustakis had a negative war in 2021 and 22, so I'm okay saying that. I have one question that's sort of silly. It's about bench coach labeling. So yes. we, we, we've seen major league coaching staffs expand and minor league coaching staffs for that matter. But typically we have seen just one bench coach per team, even as we've had assistant pitching coaches and assistant hitting coaches. And I guess the Brewers don't have a bench coach technically, but really they just renamed the role. Ricky Weeks is their associate manager, sort of the, the same position. The Padres don't have a bench coach, but I guess there's kind of a law of conservation of bench coaches. Uh, bench coaches can neither be created nor destroyed because there's a consistent number of bench coaches because the Padres don't have one. The Reds have two. So they're picking yes. up the Padres slack. So I've been picturing like one bench coach on each of David Bell's shoulders offering him conflicting tactical advice. I'm sure that's not how it's going to work, but tell us about the Reds' two bench coaches, why they have two, how that's going to work. Which one is the angel and which one's the devil? Freddie Benavides <laughs> is definitely the angel. Um, sorry, pick. Uh, but uh, Jeff Pickler being the other bench coach. The way that David Bell kind of described it to us is like, What's, what's the one in like higher education? What's higher associate or assistant director mm -hmm. or whatever? Whatever one's higher is what, what Freddie Benavides is, like the manager. Assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> uh, no, he's the assistant 
regional manager. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe Pickler is the assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> I guess the most important thing is when David Bell gets tossed, which he will, and this is kind of what I said to him, I was like, okay, so when you get tossed, is it still Freddie who takes over? And he says, yes. And then, okay, so after Freddie, it's Pick. And he said, yes. And that's actually how it was even the first year, because it was Jeff Pickler who was the manager when uh, he took Amir Garrett out that fateful day against the Pirates and told Amir to go get him, meaning I think he meant the shower, but that is not what uh, Amir did, and he went to get the Pirates. So that's a little thing that because uh, both David Bell had already been ejected and then Freddie Benavides had been ejected. So he was, is that the, uh, he was the designated survivor. Uh-huh. And um, that's kind of where he is. So he's the secretary of agriculture. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> okay, so that takes us to our traditional closing question: What would ah, constitute crap. success for the Reds? <laughs> oh, this what season? would constitute the, success? Yes. Yeah. No, we're we're in the post win total predictions era of the team preview series, so so don't worry. But yeah, how do we judge whether this is a successful season for the Reds, top to bottom? Playoffs. Okay. <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, last year was the step, right? What what you only didn't have last year was playoffs. So anything short of the playoffs is a step either lateral or back, right? So playoffs. All right. Okay. Well, that was simple. <laughs> okay. Well, I could have done we, my Jim Mora playoffs. Mm-hmm, could have right. done for the football folk out there. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll find out whether the Reds accomplish their goal and one way or another. See Trent Rosecrans. We'll be covering them at The Athletic. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Trent. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it, both of you. All right. Well, earlier, Meg asked Caitlin a question about the Blue Jays re-signing Matt Chapman. Now we know that's not happening, as Chapman signed with the San Francisco Giants. It's a three-year, $54 million deal with opt-outs after each of the first two seasons. Basically, the Bellinger contract, but smaller. So, I guess it's a good thing that we didn't do our Giants preview yet. We can banter about this signing next time and discuss it in depth with Grant Brisby on our Giants preview. As you may recall, in our free agent contracts over-under draft, I took the under on MLB trade rumors prediction of $150 million for Chapman. So those Boris client picks really working out for me. I still have Montgomery and Martinez. Meg still has Snell, but I think this gives me a lead of more than $280 million. So unless Montgomery gets an enormous contract and Blake Snell pays some team to play for them, I think this thing is over. Tough outcome for Chapman and another non-win at the very least for Boris. More to come. That will do it for today and for this week. And with that, we have now done eight of our 15 preview pods and previewed 16 of the 30 teams. We're more than halfway. Opening day approaches. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Andy Northrup, Jacob Reed, Scott Suttmeyer, Teresa Gallagher, and Christian Medrano. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, audio or video messages, autographed books, discounts on Fangraph's memberships, merch, and more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you just can't get enough of us, there are 28 more episodes of me and Meg that are available to patrons right now. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, 
Don't worry, you can still contact us via email, send your questions and comments, and even your Effectively Wild intro and outro themes, like today's outro theme by listener Mulder Batflip, to podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. If you like the show, those positive iTunes ratings and reviews help us, both by attracting new listeners and by bucking us up, boosting our self-esteem. You can also join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll be back to talk to you next week. No notes. No notes. Hold on. No. Hold on. No. Notes. 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 Brussels sprouts. I binged on Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. I binged on Brussels sprouts. They both played for Pittsburgh?